Hi, this is Jamie Shokum, host of Webcomics Reviews and Interviews. Today we're sitting down with Gamal Hennessy, comic book lawyer. So sit back, relax, and let the Geek Fest begin. Hello, my name is Gamal Hennessy, and I'm a comic book lawyer from New York City. I've done work for big companies like Marvel and Amazon, as well as smaller independent publishers like Mad Cave and Aftershock, and brand new creators just starting out in their first books. So pretty much seen a lot of things over the past 20 years in the business. Well, the U.S. government, when the country was being formed, decided that they wanted a way to actually promote creative individuals in the country from actually adding to the cultural, economic, and social life of the country. So they created something called the copyright law. What the copyright law basically does, it gives the creator of any original work, and a work can be a song, a film, a comic book, a novel, a lot of different things. Whatever that work is, they get the right to own and control how it's used. Now, in the most basic concept, that is the right to make a copy, which is where the name comes from. But the real power in it is the right to actually control how that work gets used. So, for example, you take a company like DC. They have a copyright in a character, among others, called Batman. Not only do they get the right to create original works, which is the comic books and graphic novels of Batman, but they control the image, they control the story, they control everything about it. So that can now appear in books and games and television shows and movies and on merchandise and everywhere else that you could actually attach an image to something. And based on that, a company like DC can make millions and millions of dollars a year simply because they own the copyright. And how does one basically protect their copyright? Well, there's two ways to protect the copyright, mainly. The first way, because the first thing you should understand is a copyright is actually created as soon as you actually create something original in what's called a fixed medium of expression. So if you have an idea about a story and you never write it down, there is no copyright because it is ne you have never put it in a fixed medium of expression. But once you write it down, you have a copyright. It is much easier, infinitely easier, to protect the copyright if you register the copyright with the copyright office and whatever dealings you have with this copyright is all secured by a contract that you sign and actually could you understand controls all the various elements of the usage of that copyright. And of course, how exactly does a... I assume you know what a poor man's copyright is, which is basically you just basically send something to yourself, possibly in a vanilla envelope. How does that not protect you? Uh, poor man's copyright, there is actually no such thing. Somewhere in the dark recesses of time, someone thought up the idea that I'm going to mail myself something and then never open it, and the postmark on the envelope is some, will somehow serve as a copyright 
instead of just filing something with the Copyright Office. But the Copyright Office on their website and in all of their literature clearly states that that's actually not helping you to do anything. There is no legal protection that you get by mailing something to yourself. The silly part about the poor man's copyright is that filing a copyright is not complicated and it's not expensive. It costs about $35. Filling out the form takes about, I don't know, 10 minutes. There is no reason to actually do something that's not going to protect you when the, the action that will protect you is very cheap and easy. Yeah, sure. I point out that it doesn't protect you, so... Um, and, of course, what's the difference between a copyright and a trademark? Well, a copyright is a legal protection to make a copy of an original work. A trademark is a name, a word, a symbol, or a combination of all those things that is used for to actually identify goods and service services in commerce. And the easiest way that I have ever found to actually explain this to people who read comic books is to give an example. And the example is, let's say that there's a guy, and the guy's name is Bob, and Bob makes a character, right? And this character is, when he was a little boy, went to the movies with his parents. And his but even though his parents were very rich, for some strange reason, they decided to go home through a deep, dark alley after the movie was over. Unfortunately, the little boy sees his parents killed in front of him, and then he is psychologically traumatized for the rest of his life. That story has a copyright attached to it, because it was filed way back 80 years ago when the story was originally created. Now, if this kid, through his psychological trauma, decides that he is going to fight crime and make criminals feel the same fear that he felt in that alley, and then he decides he's going to have a fetish for, like, some kind of animal, and let's just say, for the sake of argument, that this is a bat, and he attaches his bat to everything and anything that he has ever owned... That symbol is can be used as a trademark. In fact, it is used as a trademark for everything under the sun. The difference is the symbol used on the stuff, whether it's a t-shirt or a car or anything else, is a use of a trademark. The story tied to that image is protected by a copyright. When you're actually creating a comic book, in a lot of cases, not in all cases, you're creating both the potential for a copyright and a trademark, depending on how you actually play it out. Cool. English translation. The story is copyrightable. The character and the symbol of the character, however, is trademarkable. Mm, yes. Okay. Okay, and of course, the all sorts of fun one. Uh, what's the basics of the fair use doctrine? Well, fair use is actually was actually developed so that there can be one idea can build off of another idea without everyone being so afraid to violate infringe on copyright that they're constantly having to reinvent the wheel. So under certain circumstances, whether it's educational, critique, or parody, or other things, one 
creator can take a portion of another creator's work and use that work as part of the fair use doctrine. Now, the problem, or not the problem, the specifics of the fair use doctrine is an individual who is using the material of someone else cannot decide that they are using the fair use doctrine. What has to happen is the original creator has to come in and make a claim for infringement, and then in court, the defense of the later creator will be, I was using it under fair use. And then the court has to decide one way or another whether it was fair use or not. So in practical terms, it becomes a very expensive concept to work under because you're going to have to pay the legal fees if you actually get sued under copyright infringement to use that defense. So while a lot of people like want to use it or claim to use it, it's something that is it comes with a cost that you should keep in mind when you are attempting to go under the fair use doctrine. And can I legitimately claim fair use if I'm basically not planning on making a profit from the uh, entity in question? Yes, that is one of the elements that the court will look at. How much were you planning on making money? How much money did you make? How much of the original work was part of what it was that you were doing. There is a multi-step multi -step test in the fair use analysis, but what I try to tell my clients is don't just assume that that's going to be an automatic shield in the event that you decide to use it. Use somebody else's material for your, um, for your book. Yeah, I just covering an interesting uh, bit of area there because a lot of people will claim that they can go ahead and you go ahead and use say Superman even though they weren't planning to make any kind of profit off the situation. Well, good luck, but um, well, you also have to look at the practical implications of it because if someone is going to use Superman or someone who looks like Superman and the actual distribution of this thing. Is it going to rise behind a few hundred units? That it's actually not worth DC's time and money to get their lawyers to even send you a cease and desist letter. But what you don't want to happen is you don't want the thing to inadvertently get huge, and then all of a sudden you show up on DC's radar, and then you're all you're hoping you're pinning your hopes on is the fair use doctrine you might find that that's not really adequate protection, especially if it costs you several tens of thousands of dollars to defend yourself in court. Because even if you win under the fair use doctrine, you might lose so much money in the process that it was never worth it. Right. And, of course, I guess the fun question is, and hey, well, you just had the right question that completely boxed it. Um... How is it possible to lose a copyright? To lose a copyright? Well, the easiest way that my clients have lost their copyrights over the years is they simply sign the rights to their copyright away, which basically means you have a copyright, you did all the proper paperwork, and then someone came along and said they wanted to publish your comic. So you signed a contract that they gave you, and that contract, little did you know, actually 
transfers all the rights to the property from you to the publisher. And now the publisher has the copyright for all intents and purposes, and now you can't do anything with it. That is the most straightforward way to lose a copyright. You can also lose a copyright over time because copyrights are not perpetual rights. I believe right now, if you file a copyright today, your copyright will last, I think, 70 years after you die. But losing a copyright in that fashion is more rare because most people don't really worry about their copyright 70 years after their death because most copyrights don't really amount to a huge sum of money. And if they did amount to a huge sum of money, then the copyright can be subject to renewal, so you don't have to worry about it. Yeah, that would be uh, that'd be interesting to see the estate in some situations on that one. Well, there are some companies that, because they rely so heavily on copyright to actually generate revenue, that they lobby Congress every few years to have the law changed. Disney being the most famous example of this, because they've actually petitioned Congress, I believe, was twice to have the term of copyright extended to protect things like Steamboat Willie, which was the foundation of Mickey Mouse, because they did not want Mickey Mouse going into the public domain. Yeah, I thought I'd bring it up because there is a uh, group of characters called uh, publicly act. Uh, I can't remember the name of it. Is uh, basically they're a group of characters that, for one reason or another, had their copyrights lost. Um, that people tend to use every so often in their in their works. Uh, most uh, famous example in that regard is, I believe, Mister Terror is the character's name. And when was the last time a book about this character came out? I would believe about ten years ago. But he was he was one of the original, came out in the 40s type of deal. Somehow another company lost the copyright, and he's been used as a public access hero ever since. Well, there were the, because of the different changes in the copyright law over the years, there's a specific, depending on what the year you're work was released. There's a specific term of copyright. I mean, the original, I think it was in the 20s and 30s, it was a couple dozen years, and then it changed again, and you had rights to renew. There's actually sites online, and um, I think there's a link on one of my websites that shows, depending on what year the thing came out, whether or not the copyright is still good and who owns the copyright and all that kind of good stuff. But it's something that requires a little bit of digging if you plan on using a pre-existing character just to make sure that somebody doesn't already own the rights. Right. Um, I believe... Uh, I assume you know about Orphaned Works? Uh-huh. Uh, what are those? Well, Orphan Work is a work that's been uh, abandoned by the original owner to the extent that even if you someone goes in and uses a work and is technically infringement, because there's no one there who is actually available to enforce that right, the orphan work can be used without any repercussion for the infringing party. Okay. Yeah, I believe uh, one of the one of the things that comes up a lot with the public access heroes is a lot of those are basically orphaned works. So, uh, a lot of times the company's gone under or, you know, 
stuff like mm-hmm. that. So. Yeah, and there's no one there to actually enforce the rights. And, of course, here's where I prove that I'm not a lawyer. Uh, which one of the two between copyright and trademark has to, to constantly be challenged if it, should, if it happens to be threatened? You have to constantly enforce your trademark because even if even if you um, you don't actually see a likelihood of confusion in the marketplace, which is a threshold for protecting a trademark, you have to kind of constantly try to enforce your rights because you don't want the rights to lapse. So, for example, hold on. Um, every few years, you have to file a form with the trademark office to prove that you are still using the mark. And in the case of, what was the name of that movie that came out? I don't remember the movie, but I remember the tagline. It was, No Sesame All Street. And it was a film that was basically like Sesame Street, but it was like an NC-17 kind of crime drama comedy. Yeah, just recently. I think I want to to say Happy Dale, but I know Happy was in the title. I just forget what... But yeah, I know the movie. No, Happy was another was another t- um, was another story. But this one had like Muppets, and it had like guns, and it had like prostitutes, and it had singing, and it had. But the and I think Jim Henson's son was actually involved with the with the film. But the owners of Sesame Street filed a suit against the film before the film even came out, just based on the first trailer, because they thought it was um, threatening their mark. And a lot of analysts, legal analysts, suggested that Sesame Street kind of had to do, well, is it Children's Television Workshop, whoever owns it, said they had to um, protect to uh, file the suit just to protect their trademark. I mean, ultimately, they lost the suit and the movie bombed anyway, so it didn't make a difference. Right. Yeah, I think the problem there was more that they used the... uh, We were trying to pass it off as Sesame Street and the advertising more than anything else. But... You know, it's not going to drive me crazy what the name of that movie is, but I'll get that back... I'll get that to you eventually. Um, I'm a movie... I'm a cinephile. Things like that drive me nuts. So... Well, the thing funny is that I always remember the tagline. I never remember the name of the movie. Yeah, that's because the movie was so horrible. I mean, this is one of those movies that came I, out. And, and I know Melissa was in it. And I just, I just don't remember the name of it. Right? So, yeah, and of course this comes up a lot with uh, Star Trek as well. Uh, they just recently had a movie issue, in fact, with... I think they have. They've had film issues with both the the film and um, the Romulan, or is it Klingon language? Because the Klingon language is something that the producers of Star Trek didn't create. I think it was a fan created thing. So, as different like fan fiction and fan films and other things started to be produced for a long time, I think the producers of Star Trek or the owners of Star Trek never actually filed suit against any of them. And then suddenly one day there was one production that they decided they were going to file suit and they got into, there was some issue about, well, could they, could they actually claim ownership of the trademark if they hadn't been enforcing the trademark for so long? 
I think they won that case because after that you had things like Star Trek Discovery and other things, and I don't think that the company would have put sunk money into that IP if they didn't think they owned the rights to it. But it was an interesting case at the time. Okay, first off, just so I feel good, Happy Time Mem uh, Murders. Okay. Told you Happy was in there somewhere. Yes, yes. Um, but yeah, as opposed to the classic Meet the Peoples, which is a movie that needs to be seen in and of itself, just to see how weird it gets. But, uh, yeah, uh, I bring up Star Trek because they just recently had a lawsuit, even though they've decided to go ahead and actually help finance the movie, um, and I can't, that's fine, um, but they just basically decided to uh, basically, somebody put out a movie that was actually supposed to be a Star Trek thing. Um, all the characters, all the concepts, and all that. Uh, Paramount got a, found out about the situation and then sued them. But this is actually going to work out in a really weird sense way because Paramount's now actually uh, financing the movie. Well, then they might have sued just so that they can get control or at least get a seat at the table for the production. They didn't want to lose out on the potential cash. Yeah. So, just pointing out that Paramount tends to be um, a little bit more aggressive than other companies when it comes to their uh, to their trademarks. Well, I think they might have the most um, high-profile uses, but from the time that I've even back in the days when I worked at Marvel, there was a specific person whose only job in the company was to scan the uses of different types of copyrights and trademarks and send out cease and desist letters and threaten lawsuits to anybody that they felt was threatening any one of the hundreds of characters that is was in Marvel's rotation. So I think after Disney bought them, I'm sure there's the whole office full of people. That's all they do is like hunt down infringement and snuff them out. Right. No. I mean, I know uh, pretty much every company does have their, uh, especially the bigger ones, have their uh, groups that do that. It's just uh, because of the various fandoms and all that, Star Trek tends to pop up the most. Yeah, because I think the, the fans there feel more of a sense of ownership than even something like a Star Wars or an X-Men or something like that. Yeah. What was the other fun part? Okay, and of course, uh, I guess we might, might as well bring up the uh, convention issues with uh, copyright and trademark. Now, are you talking about? Are we are we talking about fan art now? Pretty much, about? yeah. Okay. Well, actually, this well, will be this will be this will be a two parter. Uh, fan art's obviously part of it. These other stuff that's uh, we'll let's deal with the fan art first. Okay, fan art is technically copyright infringement because you are a taking a character that is the property of a established owner and b you are using that intellectual property to make a profit for yourself. Now, having said that, the companies that in question, Marvel, DC, Lucasfilm, whoever, 
have probably come to the logical conclusion that it is not necessarily in their best interest in most cases to go after any creator for fan art because a it's bad publicity b they're not really hurting the bottom line of marvel or dc and c it might actually cost more to track all this stuff down than it would be than it would be worth it so they don't do it it doesn't mean that it's not infringement it just means that there's not a real incentive on the part of the copyright owner in that case to do something about it now if there was a scenario i believe where somebody was doing fan art on a huge scale like there was art books and all this other stuff of fan art that some was somehow cutting into the profit margin of one of these companies then they would go after that person and then you would probably you might see a watershed case where fan art would actually be kind of altered in the comic book in the convention um environment but i think the same thing to a certain extent extends to cosplay because a cosplayer who puts on a costume of a copyrighted character then goes out and makes money through taking photos or contests or whatever is i think on a certain level infringement but from the comic book company standpoint or the copyright holder standpoint it's actually very good publicity that they don't have to pay for because if 500 people show up at a convention dressed as Harley Quinn, it's not a bad thing for DC actually. It's pretty good. So it's it's infringement that serves a purpose for the people who are suffering from the infringement if that makes sense. Yeah, in fact I was going to point out there's a uh a, a D case that actually pretty much covers that. That a lot of the big companies are actually seeing this as a like you pointed out as a form of marketing. So yeah. You could tell there was someone I think it was somebody that I was drinking with after a convention they who was said you could actually tell which characters are more popular that year whether it's the comic the film whatever depending on how many cosplayers you see if you see 3000 squirrel girls all of a sudden well squirrel girls clearly doing well right well, how well but clearly doing well You see, I mean, after Deadpool came out, there was all the Deadpools. This year, I'm assuming there'll be a lot of Thanos, you know, maybe a lot of, yeah, that's what I'm thinking, a lot of Thanos. There'll be more Aquaman. Fine. There'll be some Shazams in there. Sure. <laughs> Great. Shazams a fun one to bring up in this conversation. <laughs> well, yes. <laughs> I think him he's like one of the top two uh when it comes to copyright trademark issues he's one of the top two characters get brought, that gets brought up. So well, he kind of has to because of the convoluted nature of his existence. <laughs> so the other one in case you're curious is uh Miracle Man. So, Miracle Man. Miracle Man. I was I'm not I am not familiar with the controversy surrounding Miracle Man. Please elaborate. Oh, you're going to love this one. <laughs> the problem is is that 
He's a UK character. Who actually started off as, and let me know if you've heard this one before, as Marvel Man. Marvel Man. Marvel Man. However, for obvious reasons, um, I... Not can the I want to say 2000 AD just because it's pretty much everything British, but they tried to bring him over to the U.S. and well, um, or uh, Marvel Comics sort of had a problem. <laughs> Understandably, even though I don't think I don't think there is a character in Marvel called Marvel Man, but that's beside the point. The likelihood of confusion would be the argument they would use, and that likelihood would probably be very high. Ergo, why they had ended up changing the uh, name of the character when they translated him over to America. To Miracle Man. But isn't... Oh, that's, that's right. Marvel... I mean, DC has Mr. Miracle. Yeah. They don't have him. Okay. One of the dark... Started off as one of the more lightweight uh, characters, almost a Superman type. And then, of course, they decided to throw it darker and actually made him into a uh, ruler of the universe, a ruler of the planet type of situation. Basically, a deconstruction of the superhero genre, if you will. Okay. Those those have always worked it well. They've usually worked in the past, so... So... Just, I was... Yeah, like you said, him and... Him and Shazam are like the two uh, front runners in that, in that particular area. Yes. So... Because that is definitely some fun territory to look at. Um, I just point out real quick that uh, some of the Japanese co- uh, comic book companies actually have an interesting tradition. As part, have you ever heard of uh, the Comic Cat? No, I have not. It's a big, huge comic book convention over in Japan. Every that happens like once a year, uh-huh. and we're talking. It's not just like. We're talking like actually takes on square miles type of area. And is this during the summer? I think so. Uh, the relevance here is that one of the more interesting traditions as far as uh, manga goes is that because of the fan art situation, they'll have a lot of people do a lot of comics based on particular characters. You'll actually have the people from the, the manga companies go out and actually look for uh, people who do, do, I know I'm going to get this pronunciation wrong, Dujinshi, which is basically fan art, except for comic book length. And they'll actually end up hiring some of these uh, artists into the actual manga company later on. Oh, well, that is that sounds very similar to one of the, um, one of the to pieces of advice that Publishers, especially publishers that I knew back at um, at Marvel, they would suggest when you're cre- if you're creating your portfolio and your goal is to actually do freelance work for Marvel, what they usually want to see is they want to see how you actually interpret and express their characters. So the w- advice they gave was if you're going to go out and try to pitch to a Marvel editor to try to get on to a Spider-Man book, they want to see how you actually. They want to see a few pages of you doing Spider-Man. They don't want to see your character because they're not going to hire you to do your character. They're going to hire you to do their character. So in that sense, while it's not because it's not fan art, you're actually using it in your portfolio, that is a case where you should be using the characters of the people you're trying to 
hire you to actually get work with them. But it's not a situation where you're just sitting at a table and you're creating this art and you're selling it to somebody else and it has nothing to do with the company. That would be the difference between, I mean, I guess that's how the fan art in the Japanese situation actually becomes like the portfolio review that Marvel and other companies do over here as a separate activity. Yeah, in this case, it's more of the, they're doing comic books, but they're of a small enough run that the Japanese companies are seeing them more as a free marketing situation than it is true copyright infringement. So, like I said, it's sort of the situation D we were referring to earlier. So. Exactly. And, of course, the, uh, I guess we covered one shoe, so let's because the other shoe drop. Uh, and I just had. What about people who are doing uh, huge print runs that are, you know, selling them through conventions and other things like through Etsy, um, that are basically obviously copyright infringement, or is that just what? What huge print runs of what exactly? Um, you've heard of a company called Teespring, with those T-shirts? No. Uh, what a lot of people will do is they'll come up with this really cool t-shirt idea that's based oh. off of um, like a Doctor Who uh, Disney mashup. Right. And they'll do um, actually set it up so you, anybody who wants to buy that t-shirt can go ahead and uh, buy that t-shirt through a print-on-demand service. So, but if it's a Doctor Who Disney mashup, then... I mean, on the there's an outside chance that they can actually claim that they are creating a compilation or a derivative work, but because of the names that you're that they're being thrown around here, I'm under the assumption that this is going to be a short-lived thing because at some point someone's going to actually file a suit that will wipe out this T-shirt company, even if they have a credible claim of derivative work or completion. Right. That's That would be my assumption, but I don't know enough about the case. Uh, like I said, it's, one of those, it's pretty much right on the cusp of they're not really sure if it counts as good marketing or if it's something they need to actually worry about. So Exactly. I mean, the, the other option is if it is good marketing, they could just swallow up the whole thing, but you know that, and that might be faster and cheaper than the whole lawsuit situation. But we, it all depends on the the numbers and the mood of the people in question. And of course, there's a fun question of: Let's say you've got uh, somebody who goes around tracks down cosplayers of a specific character, and then puts out a book of, of nothing but pictures of those characters. How's that? How old is that? Where would that fall? Uh, this is I, just one of those things. That always was has always got me curiosity. Is a guy who actually somebody actually did this, by the way. Actually, did a, you know, I assume you know about Slave Leia costume, right? Yes. Somebody actually went through and as many conventions as he possibly could got everybody doing a Slave Leia costume and actually did a picture of them, and then eventually released this as an actual book. Well. That's going to, that's still going to be technically infringement, 
technically you're making money off of a copyrighted character, but it might still fall under that, you know, marketing for the actual owner as opposed to something that needs to be crushed because I highly doubt that anybody at Lucasfilm or Disney had the time or the interest to go around finding all the slave layers of the world and taking their picture and cop compiling it into a book and yeah I mean it's it's something that they could have done but they probably didn't want to and therefore you're not really cutting into their revenue stream and you'll only get a issue you only get a legal challenge or a legal issue when you start to actually hit somebody in the wallet. Before the, after, before that, it'll probably be okay. Right. Sorry, it was just one of those more interesting uh, situations that developed, so. <laughs> so, trying to make sure. Is there anything I might have left out as far as the copyright trademark situation goes? Well, I think the most important thing is that to keep in mind is that filing a copyright for something that you create originally is really easy to do, and you should go ahead and do that as soon as possible. And using somebody else's copyright is something that you should probably avoid, especially if the people that you're using their copyright are big enough to, you know, wipe you off the face of the planet. No. Uh, just out of curiosity, where, where's uh, Hamaz, uh, ha, bleh, Hamaz is still, still on the, the uh, entire spectrum? Well, if you're creating something that is a homage to a pre-existing work and you, are, you make um, an alliteration to a pre-existing work, in, like you see in a lot of like film, like... Deadpool built their like the, half their half their jokes off or homages to other films. That is usually not going to be considered an infringement. That's going to fall more along the lines of fair use. But I don't believe that that kind of concept has been challenged yet because no one has seen fit to actually create a legal contest based on that kind of use. I thought you sewed up because you see a lot of it with Marvel and DC. Um, uh, most notably, um, the Imperial Guard from the X-Men, which is nothing but Legion of Superhero characters that have been uh, remastered, so to speak. Exactly. And, of course, you also... I'm sorry? There's actually been whole... Um videos and like articles done on the how many characters DC has derived off Marvel characters how many Marvel characters DC how many Marvel characters have been derived from DC characters the Imperial Guard is a perfect example of that the Incredibles is another example of that I mean yes you look at them and anybody who's seen that once before ever in their life goes, I know what that is, but it's still an original um, is original expression of an idea. The Imperial Guard may, you may as soon as you look at them go, yeah, that's Legion of Superheroes, but it's not Legion of Superheroes. It's kind of like Legion of Superheroes. So, you know, 
it's that's not even a homage. That is an original expression of intellectual property. Even if you know exactly, because if you look at what was that other character? I mean, the list is long. Yeah, Deadpool, Korean Superman, Deadpool, Deathstroke, Ant Man, Adam. I mean, yeah. Well, I'll point out the entire Squadron Supreme is based on the uh, Justice League. So, yes. Exactly. <laughs> but, still an original expression, everybody gets to go about their business. And just out of curiosity, is there a legal difference between satire and parody? Satire and parody are both um, examples of fair use, but and they are, depending on the context, one is actually used as a legal defense as opposed to the other, but they're part of the same group of defenses when you're talking about Okay. Yeah, for some reason I thought there was some sort of difference between the two as far as legal goes. So. Yeah, this is where me as a writer comes in and says, I mean, I know the difference between the two as a writer. Uh, one of them is a straight up joke and one of them is making a social commentary. Uh, parody um, being a joke. Social commentary, yeah, social commentary and satire and charity are all exact of ways that fair use can actually be expressed. But when you actually come back down to the root, it's still going to be a question of is it fair use or not. So, all right, anything else you'd like to say? No, I think we've covered it all. Jeez, I hate it when that happens. <laughs> so, all right, uh, well, thanks for having you. Oh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And that was Gamal Hennessy, comic book lawyer. I've also got three major announcements. Uh, first off, I started up a Patreon page. Uh, Patreon.com slash Two Sparrows. And you can check that out for further details. I've also got two books out on Amazon right now. Uh, Writer's Resource Character Building, which is available in Paperbook for $6 and Kindle version for 3 and it's basically all those really neat tips and tricks about how to build characters all the way from the relationships, what roles they play, and of course what various equipment they have. I mean, this is a visual medium, so of course that little details like appearance and all that have to be taken care of to account as well. Essentially, it looks at how all these really neat little details add up into not only creating a well-rounded character, but also how the character can be used to further your plot. Also, the How to Create a Comic Book Handbook. Basically, $5 and it takes you through all the things you need to create a Bible for your comic. It includes not only all the various visual elements, it also has a relationship chart, and it also has a way to set up your own little business plan for your comic. So, go ahead and check those out and I think you'll be very happy with the books as presented. This podcast is also now accepting sponsors. Uh, essentially, $5 will get you a 30-second ad. So, please contact me through the Facebook page. It, there is a web comics reviews and interviews on Facebook. Check me out. So, let's talk. This week's sponsor is Shelly's Editing Service. Shelly Messia, freelance editor at Shelly's Editing Service.com. 
S-H-E-L-L-E-Y-S. Need an editor? Are you a budding author, college student, or a job hunter? Shelley's Editing Service edits everything from resumes and cover letters to college essays and manuscripts. Reasonable rates and a quick turnaround time. Her rate is $8 per thousand words. She edits line by line, checking for grammar, spelling, and character inconsistency, plot, story arc continuity, and she's your editor from the beginning to after the project is done. You can ask questions of her at any time. She's available to bounce ideas off of, and she'll answer any questions on a big edit. If you don't like something, she'll explain why. She assists with your synopsis and your query letters, and she's been a journalist, a substitute teacher, an editorial assistant, and a proofreader. Again, that's Shelly'sEditingService.com. S-H-E-L-L-E-Y-S. She's also available on Facebook at Shelly's Editing Service, and you can contact her at her email at ShellyMessia07 at Hotmail.com. That's S-H-E-L-L-E-Y-M-A. S-C-I-A-07 Hotmail.com Have a great night and I'll talk to you later.